right in the middle of a series about you and how you're gifted and how you're shaped and how you're designed and how God uh, did those things in you. And we're all born and we're all designed and we were all made in a very, very specific way. Uh, Genesis 1 tells us that in a conversation with the other members of the Trinity that God the Father said, let us make human beings in our image. So we are made in the image of God. And so that, that tells us a couple of things. One, we're human and we're created by God. Uh, we're, we're very special and unique in creation uh, as God's children. But secondly, it tells us that we're all stamped with the image of God. One of the sevenfold aspects of God's spirit. Uh, we've been looking at that passage in Revelation uh, that talks about the sevenfold spirit of God. And, and so there are seven facets that God Almighty has in his perfection and in his holiness and, and when he created us, he stamped us with one of those facets and with one of those images. And that is the place at which we sync up and connect with God. It is like water flowing down the path of least resistance. That's the place at which the Holy Spirit connects to our spirit uh, first and, and easiest. And uh, God gave us all different gifts and all different abilities according to his will. We, we've been looking at this verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 6. If you got your Bible, go to Romans 12 because uh, we're going to be there again. But at verse 6 says it's in his grace, out of his grace, that God has given us different gifts uh, and different abilities for doing certain things well. God put all of us together in a certain way. And, and as a group of people, he, he brought us together. And so that my gifts match up and your gifts match up and we help one another in, in the body of Christ. We, we do certain things well. And Paul used the illustration over and over and over again uh, with the, the New Testament church. It's like a body and everyone has a different part in the body and every part has to do its job. And we help the body grow uh, together for the mutual benefit of, of the whole body. And you just think about this church and you think about our city and you think about this country and, and imagine with me our world. What if we all took our gifts and got on board uh, with the gifts that God has given us and used our gifts together and, and watch God transform us and watch God transform the world uh, through us. I want you just to imagine that with me and, and how we look at gifts. Sometimes people use this whole study as an excuse and they say, well, this is my gift. I don't have that gift. And so I'm not going to, uh, you know, I don't have to do that. In other words, the prophet may say, well, I'm a prophet. I, I can't be expected to ever show mercy, right? Or I'm a servant. I don't need to think about or worry about giving. Uh, why, you know, why would I do that? And that's not how this works. None of us are exempt from growing. And from growing in all of the facets of this, we are expected to grow in grace in all of these areas. Uh, but when you find the one gift that God has stamped you with, that means you have now discovered how you can best be used and, and where the path of least resistance happens and, and it, how it happens in a natural way. When you are working in your gifting, it feels natural because the Spirit of God is flowing through the way that you were made and stamped in the image of God. And when you do it outside of your gifting, it does not feel natural. In fact, it just doesn't feel right. Uh, it, it's like uh, writing your name. Here's what I want you to do real quick on the top of your paper. Just I want you to swap hands with your pen. And I want you to write your name at the top of the paper with the wrong hand. Hurry up. Do this. Okay, we ain't got all day. Do it. 
And, and as you write your name with the wrong hand at the top of the paper, there's three things that I want to point out to you. One, it's uncomfortable. Two, it takes longer. And three, you, you did a lousy job. I'm an encourager, and I want to encourage you in that way, to, to do it the way God made you. And last week, we covered the first two gifts, prophet and servant. And if you missed it, I want you to go back online and watch it and catch up with us, get the test, print it out, and, and take it so that you have a score for all seven gifts along the way, okay? And so, uh, in fact, if you weren't here, watch the whole thing online, score yourself, and then that way you can compare it to the results you have today. And so today we're continuing with the very next two gifts. In verse 7 uh, of Romans chapter 12, he mentions these. And listen as he says, if you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. And those are the two gifts we're looking at today. So let's start uh, with the teacher. In fact, let me just begin with this question. Every campus today, if you are a professional teacher, would you just raise your hand and, and let us see it across the room, all across the room? Okay. Uh, all right. You can put it down. Many of you do that. We thank God for you. You are the most underpaid, highly qualified people on the planet, and we rejoice in you. Okay. And if you are a teacher today... Let, let me just say this to you. This may be right up your alley. It may not be right up your alley. And I just want to warn you on that on the front end. If you score low on this, this does not mean you need to change professions, okay? I'm not wearing that weight and I'm not wearing that responsibility. That's not what I'm saying to you today. In fact, as we come across it, it's a little bit different than you would think. In fact, many very gifted professional teachers do not have the gift of teaching. And we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll look at that. But when we look at this word in Scripture in Romans chapter 12, the teacher, Romans 12 tells us uh, that it's not about the ability to teach a class. That's not what this gift is about. Nor is it about the ability to plan a curriculum. Nor does it have anything to do with the ability to lead a discussion or discipline students. Okay, This word in the Bible is simplified with this one word, and I want you to write it down. Researcher. The teacher, the gifted teacher is the researcher. And, and what do I mean by that? So let's just look at this personality test. This is the way this flows. If you weren't here last week, you got this when you came in the door, or maybe it's, it was on the seat when you came in. Uh, if you don't have this, raise your hand real quick, and the ushers will scramble on every campus to get you this uh, page uh, so that you can have it. Everybody here in Battle Creek have one of these? Okay. If not, raise your hand high so that they can see it. Okay. So we're going to score ourselves. One means never. Five means always. Two, three, and four are somewhere in between uh, on these. Brian, we got some up here that have hands raised as well. And so I want you to score yourself and, and make sure uh, that you keep the number, and, and then we'll total them at the end. And so the teacher, the researcher, wants to find truth. They want to find truth everywhere. They want to find it in the business world. They want to find it in the classroom. They want to find it in the church. They want to find it in their home. They want truth. And so they are in a constant pursuit of truth with their lives. Uh, I, I, every week I give you a biblical example of each of these gifts. Luke is the example here. He is clearly uh, the teacher. And I want you to listen in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, as he starts in with his gospel. He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. And just look at verse 3. This is the teacher. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, the most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. There are a lot of words in that verse of Scripture that give us the, the clarity of a teacher. Okay, so rate yourself on number one. Number two 
delights in doing research and study. They would rather do this than anything else. Okay? They'd rather study and do research that, uh, over sports. They would rather do that over uh, any other hobby uh, that people have, cooking, cleaning. That Their house is full of books. They've got stacks and stacks and stacks of books. You ask the teacher what their hobby is, and they say, my hobby is reading. I like to read. To the rest of us, go, that's not a hobby. That's homework, right? We have to do it. We'll check it off. But, but th- that's what the teacher loves to do. At least it's how the rest of us see it. We don't enjoy that, and we don't see it. But the teacher sees reading as growth, and that they are growing. They're not people-oriented by nature, uh, a lot like the prophet in that regard. The prophet wants to know God's will so that they can tell others God's will. So they can correct people into God's will, right? The teacher wants to know God's word, so that they can simply understand. That's the goal, to simply understand uh, God's Word. Teachers generally know a little bit about everything, right? I mean, they know a little about a lot, a lot, a lot of things. You don't want to play Jeopardy against a teacher, okay, because they will clean your clock, because they know things that you don't know. Uh, But just because they're teaching, by the way, or they have the gift of teaching, does not mean they're a captivating speaker. In fact, I would say to you, the opposite is generally true. People who have the gift of researcher uh, may be as dry as Melba toast. And they will go on and on and on and on because they know so much and the content just keeps going. The exhorter, different. The exhorter is the life of the party. They're amazing guest speakers, by the way. The exhorter is an amazing guest speaker. And, and you, you, everybody will love it. And when we have exhorters in, I'll say to you, how did you like the speaker a week later? You say, I loved him. And I say, what did he say? And you say, I don't know. Nothing. He said nothing, actually, right? But it was fun. But the teacher's just the opposite of that. They may bore you to death, but you got content. And and you got all kinds of notes written down, and and it was good. Luke wrote two books. What are they? Luke is the gimme, right? (laughs) He wrote Luke, and he also wrote Acts, okay? And so both of these books in the Bible, it's a two-volume set of early church history. Is what he gave us. And in Acts chapter 1, he, he says to Theophilus in verse 1, I, in my first book, Luke, I, I told you about everything Jesus did and everything that Jesus taught. Uh, and, and now I'm going to move on with this and, and I want to show you something. But the word that he used there that I want you to pay attention to that is a telltale sign that he's a teacher is, I taught you everything. Everything. I researched it all out, and I put it all here for you. Now pack a lunch because we're about to go deep in it. And, and so, in fact, let me ask you this question. At Christmas time, when your family gathers around and reads one of the biblical accounts of the birth of Jesus, which one do you choose? Luke. Every time. Every Christmas service, we always go back to Luke. Why? Because Luke is the teacher. He includes details that nobody else includes, and and he explains details that none of the other gospel writers use for us. His passion is for others and and what Jesus did. He wants them to know what Jesus did, how he came to earth and how he died for us and how he rose again. And and for Luke, the most important thing is telling others about Jesus. He wants us all to know about Jesus. So rate yourself. Number three is presents truth in a systematic manner. The teacher lives, breathes, and thinks in outline form. They are very, very linear people. 
And, and you ask them about their day and they can describe to you the details of their day because it's all outlined for them in their brain, right? Or on a piece of paper in some sort of software, they go through their day in outline form, okay? Step number one, get the kids ready for school. All right, that means we gotta get them dressed, we gotta feed them breakfast, we gotta brush their teeth, we gotta get the backpacks, we gotta load in the car, and they just operate in that way. And, and you, you talk to the teacher and you just see outlines appear out of nowhere. They just come out of their head, and it, it appears like lines on a chalkboard that, that just materializes for them because they're so good at putting things in their compartments. Look, look back at verse 3 again in Luke chapter 1 uh, on the screen. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Another way to translate that phrase, having carefully investigated, is having perfect understanding. And I want you to hear that for the teacher, having perfect understanding means that they can outline it. And it is reproducible outline that can be handed out to everyone, you know, in their lives. Number four, evaluates all ideas by what they know to be true. A teacher will drive you crazy asking millions of questions because they want to know the facts, right? And, and it's the teacher that says, just the facts, ma'am, right? You know, they don't want to dive off into all of them. They just want to know the facts. And they, what the teacher, by the way, what God uses the teachers to do is to keep the church doctrinally pure. Because what the teacher comes around and says is, hey, I understand what you feel, but what does the book say? What does the Bible say? You do not find many people gifted with the gift of teaching ending up in a cult. They, they, by the way, they stay away from denominations that are bent by emotionalism. But the problem with the teacher is it's hard for them to walk by faith because they, they like everything detailed. And they want everything explained to them one step at a time and one piece at a time. Okay, so rate yourself. Number four, they express, what number are we on? Five. They express an interest in the factual basis of what others have to say. They ask a lot of questions because they want to cross-check you. And they're not content with just taking you at your word or at face value. They want you to prove it. And they want you to show you, they want you to show them where you got it and where it came from and how it all fits together. And, and, and you know, the rest of us, we see this video on social media, on Facebook or whatever, and we think, man, that was funny or that's fascinating. And, and we just move on, not the teacher. The teacher takes that video and breaks it down and researches it and says, is that true? Where did that, did that really happen? Who said that really happened? Who saw that happen? And, and they want to verify it. It's the people that started Snopes, right? The web pages that weed out myths, right? And, and so they go into that and they want to verify everything. Did that actually happen? And, and is that actually playing out? Okay, so Luke chapter one, verse one, he says, many people have set out to write accounts, but I'm gonna give you all the facts, and I want you to know all the facts. And so they're asking these questions. And by the way, their questions and their questioning and their persist persistence can make them appear to be rude. They're not, okay? It, it, it's just, that's just the way that they're bent. And the rest of the people are going, why are you bugging me with that? Why don't you believe me? Why don't you just, under, just take what I said? But it's not that they're not taking what you said. They're interested in what you said. And they want to go further with it. And they want you to go with them, right? And then they want to discover more and more and more truth. Okay, so rate yourself there. Number six, emphasizes accuracy to the minutest detail. A teacher does not care about your opinion. And they don't care about emotion. They want to know. Those are irrelevant to them. It doesn't even meet their radar. They want to get to the bottom line. 
and to the bottom of what you are saying and the facts. And by the way, it is amazing to have a doctor, a physician, who is a gifted teacher. Because they will find out what you have. And they will stay on it, and they will figure it out, and, and they will pursue it, and you'll end up knowing what you have. Uh, the teacher, by the way, is the one who gets extremely upset when Scripture is misquoted or is taken out of context. It is like fingernails on a chalkboard for a teacher, uh, for somebody to <clears throat> say that. And, and you, they'll hear something like, well, well, God will never give you more than your hand. And they're like, oh, yeah? Where's that? In Scripture, what verse of Scripture says that? That's not in the Bible, right? And it just grates on them, okay? So rate yourself. Number seven is alert to spot details and facets of a situation not noticed by others. The teacher is the type that will sit in the corner during a meeting or a conference or or a staff meeting, and and everyone else around the table is throwing their opinions into the mix, and and their ideas are being tossed around, and everyone's getting louder and louder and louder and and more and more bold in in the meeting, and then someone notices the teacher sitting in the corner and and asks them the question. They're quiet, and they ask the teacher the question, hey, what do you think about this? And then the teacher will say one thing, just one thing, and they shoot an arrow right into the heart of the whole conversation. And the whole meeting turns on the one sentence that the teacher says in the meeting. And and that happens. So rate yourself there. Number eight, they listen carefully to others before offering their opinion. James, the brother of of Jesus, he's the first pastor or bishop of the church of Jerusalem. He's wise, he's smart, he's clearly a, a, a teacher And what he says in James chapter 1, verse 19, listen to what he says. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must be quick to listen and slow to speak. The teacher, the prophet, is the exact opposite, right? The the prophet hears something he doesn't like and speaks up. Immediately, loudly, and in your face. Okay, that's the way the prophet is going to do it, but, but not the teacher. The teacher sits back and, and will hear you out on everything you say and everything you have to say, and then they will hand you a formatted outline of why you are wrong with a cited bibliography that is double-spaced in the right format. Okay, And so, teacher, number nine, has a small select group of friends. They're not people persons. They're not glad-handers. They're not backslappers. That is not the teacher, okay? Luke wrote two books. I told you that a moment ago. And he wrote them to the same guy. Two whole books he wrote to one guy, Theophilus. Paul wrote books to whole churches, right? And, and even to churches he never even visited. He was writing to them. Number 10, exercises self-discipline and endures with consistency, just like the outlines, their whole day is set out in a to-do list. Uh, they set goals and they stick to their goals. They're driven. Uh, they're emotionally stable and they're analytical and they're driven by ration and reason above all else. Uh, they're reasonable. Paul uh, tells Timothy in chapter 4, verse 11, uh, only Luke is with me, Right? He's writing, he says, everybody else deserted me. And Demas and these guys, they're all gone. But only Luke stayed. They have endurance and they will stay with you. So what's the problem for the teacher? The teacher can have this know-it-all attitude because they usually do know-it-all. And, and, and so it can come across with this know-it-all attitude, but they represent facts. And, and when they give you facts, it's usually cold and a detached manner in which they give you the facts, right? And so that's the amazing doctor 
who can do the most precise brain surgery but has the worst bedside manner, right? Because that's the teacher. And it can make them appear to be very prideful and very arrogant because they've got all this knowledge. And in the flesh, what happens, the teacher can look down on practical wisdom, on people who don't have a degree, who don't have the pedigree and don't, you know, didn't come up through it, and they tend to forget Proverbs 3, 5, which says, lean not on your own understanding because the teacher wants understanding and everything. And so they, they, in the flesh, they will lean on their own understanding. And when they find something that they cannot understand, they get ticked off and they withdraw from the people around them, and they're on a constant knowledge search. They have hundreds and hundreds of books that they have never finished. This is the child who goes online and looks up, you know, electricity, ends up reading pages about eels and pages about Thomas Edison, and just goes on and on, and they just want knowledge. So how does the teacher best use their gift in the spirit and the flesh? I think we improved the outline for you this week in giving you a list of seven blanks. And so I'm going to give you seven in the spirit and seven in the flesh, and you can evaluate yourself. Okay. So number one in the spirit, they are self-disciplined and the flesh self-indulgent. They become lazy because they think they know everything in the spirit. The teacher is very, very thorough, detail oriented in the flesh. They are inconsistent. They get sloppy because of the confidence that they have. Number three, reverent. They're reverent towards the truth. They're reverent towards the word. They're reverent toward God. In the flesh, they are disrespectful. In the flesh, the teacher is, who do you think you are for asking that kind of a question of me? Number four, patient. They love to do research, and they'll take the patience to do it. Number five, four, on the flesh, impatient. They explode if you don't answer them quickly. Number five, in the spirit, dependable. In the flesh, unreliable. They want others to rely on them rather than to rely on Jesus. Number six, security. Uh, They have a great deal of security in the spirit because they know the facts. In the flesh, they have anxiety. In fact, they have a very poor image if they get one thing wrong or mispronounce one thing. And so in the spirit, joy. In the flesh, a great deal of frustration. And by the way, the best way to work in the spirit and not in the flesh with our gifting is by putting those gifts to use in and through the local church and in and through the body of Christ. And and in a body, there are certain things that we do and everybody has certain things that they do that are a part of their DNA. And and one of the things that's a part of our DNA for the last seven, eight years is our attention to orphan care and our attention to orphans and adoption and foster care and all that goes with that. And right now in DuPage County in Chicago, just in DuPage County, there's 240 kids in the foster care system needing a home today. In Tulsa County, I was told yesterday that we are 172 families short of taking care of the children in the system in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That means there is a big, big need and a big, big opportunity to fill that need and to care for children in a very practical way. And so there's a huge way that you can use your gifts to help people in a very tangible way to come alongside these children who need somebody to encourage them and somebody to help them. And so what we're doing today at the downtown campus at uh, 2 o'clock this afternoon is we're hosting something at our downtown campus, which by the way, those of you at Battle Creek, just put your hands together for those at downtown and what God is doing on that campus, going to baptize seven people uh, today and next week at downtown who trusted Christ and given their life. But we're going to host at that campus this event called Tulsa Recruits, and it is recruiting new families to be a part of this problem. 
in our city. Obviously, if you're in DePage, you can't make it here by two, but would you pray uh, for them? And would you consider hosting one of those there? And, and here in Tulsa, we want you to pray about attending this meeting and being a part of the solution and, and helping children in a very real way, making a very real difference in our city and our nation and, and our world. Okay, so let's move on to the next gift, the encourager. Uh, the prophet is message-oriented. The server is project-oriented. And the teacher is truth-oriented. What is the encourager focused on? Write this phrase down. Coming alongside. The encourager wants to come alongside. There's this passage of Scripture where Jesus is talking in John chapter 16 and, and, and verse 7. And here's what he says to the disciples. It's better for you if I go away because if I stay, the advocate won't come. That word advocate is the word paraclete in the original language, and the paraclete is the one who comes alongside. Para means aside. Clete means encourager or helper. And this is the encourager. The encourager is focused on coming alongside of you and helping you. Uh, let's, let's take the test, okay? Number one, encourages others to spiritual maturity. Let me say this to you, and I want you to hear me clearly. Every believer needs an encourager in their life. You are not living the Christian life to the fullest if you don't have a relationship with somebody who is an encourager. And so in a community group, that's why it's so important for you to be in community. It's why it's so important for you to get on a team and serve on some volunteer ministry team in your church that what the encourager does is help you spot your potential and they help you reach it. They want everybody to have a very full life. Encouragers are never, ever program-driven. They are never, ever, ever activity-driven. They are always people-driven. Philippians chapter 1, uh, by the way, the biblical example is Paul. He's very much the encourager. And, and he starts his letters, many of them, in this way. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. He says that. Every time, every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. Right? The rest of us are like, that would be true. We just don't think of you. Very often. But the encourager thinks of you all the time. And every time they do think of you, they give thanks to God. He goes on and says, whenever I pray for you, and they do, I make my requests for you with joy. I have all this joy inside of me when I'm making my requests and I'm praying for you. You have been my partners. He says that all the time. You're my partner in spreading the good news about Christ from, from the beginning, from the very first time you heard it, all the way till now. You have partnered with me in spreading the gospel. Now, Paul is the church planner. Paul is the apostle. He's the one that started the church at Philippi, but he never, ever saw the church as subordinate to him. They were all partners, full partners, in spreading the gospel and in taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the whole world. Okay, so rate yourself there. Number two, they perceive where a person is in the maturing process and visualize their potential for growth. The encourager will ask a lot of questions to find out where you are spiritually. And sometimes the encourager comes alongside you in your life and they'll ask you a question and you're like, you've crossed a line. Don't be pretending like you know me that well, right? You, have, you are in my business. But they're not trying to get in your business in order to uh, judge you. Okay? The prophet may get in your business to judge you, but the, the encourager sincerely wants you to be a better person. And so they'll ask you questions to find out where you are, to find out where you want to go, to help you get to where you want to go. And, and encouragers see all of us in this process of growing like Jesus. 
And we all have a part of functioning together, and we're all in this to help one another. And Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, And I am certain that God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus, or until the day that Jesus Christ returns. So rate yourself there on number two. Number three, perceives definite steps of action to take a person from where they are to where they need to be. They are very gifted with practical advice. They can size you up in a few moments of conversation and then give you five steps to take and say, if you'll take these five steps, it'll all be better. All right. So rate yourself. Number four, expects to see visible response to the prescribed steps that have been offered. They make amazing counselors. But if you fail to take their advice, you better watch out because they may give up on you and they may walk away, okay? So they give this advice and they want you to take it and they want to see results out of it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, he says, I pray for you. Paul's saying to the church, I pray for you that you will, the love in you will overflow more and more and more and you will keep on growing and you will grow in knowledge and that you will grow in understanding. For I want you, listen to what he says, for I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live a pure life and a blameless life until the day of Jesus Christ's return. Do you see the encouragement that Paul is always giving the body? I want you to grow and grow and grow and grow until you reach your full potential. Number five. They identify easily with people and effectively communicate a message of unity among diverse groups. They are mediators. They love to get in the middle of situations and dilemmas. Philippians 2.2, then make me happy. How do you make the encourager happy? By all of you agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Number six, finds truth in practical experiences and then validates it with Scripture. Exact opposite of the teacher, right? The teacher goes to the scripture and finds the truth and then tries to find a way to apply it to their lives. The encourager will encounter truth within a practical experience and then go try to validate it in scripture, okay? And and so they go try to find that in scripture. They search out the scripture for validation and they love life lessons. They love life lessons. They want a life lesson over a seminary degree. They would take a life lesson over a theological paper any day of the week. And and they are the people that love to hear personal testimonies. They check out in a Greek lesson, okay? Uh, They're like, hey, just, you know, wake me up when he rolls a testimony video. That's when I want to be involved in this thing. And, And they would rather spend 30 minutes of your community group time talking about you and your life and five minutes on the scripture or five minutes on the book that that you're studying, okay? That's the encourager. Number seven, they view personal trials as opportunities for spiritual growth. They view personal trials as opportunities for spiritual growth. The word impossible does not compute with the encourager. It is not in their vocabulary. They're not interested in obstacles. They're interested in opportunities. And in every obstacle is an opportunity, for the encourager. And, and so uh, they don't believe in impossible. They are moving on with every uh, ounce of fiber that was within them. Remember in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, And I want you to know, my brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here, which by the way, if you were to outline as a teacher everything that happened to Paul, it is not good. It's not a good list, right? I've been beaten, I've been flogged, I've been shipwrecked, I've been in prison. And by the way, he's writing the book from prison. And he says, I want you to know everything that's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. That's the encourager. All of this stuff has worked out and it is working out to advance the gospel. Okay, so rate yourself. Number eight, what are we on? Eight? Number eight, 
acts with decisiveness and moves on without regret. That's the encourager. Listen, they make quick, confident decisions without wavering. And they will make a decision. And even if it's the wrong decision, they're okay with that. Well, at least we did something. Right? And we'll learn from it and we'll move on. Okay? It's an opportunity for us to grow. Number nine, they perform tasks with thoroughness and endurance. An encourager, by the way, finishes the books that they start. I'm sorry, teachers, not like you. They finish the books. They will finish the task. They, they will stay up until it is done. They will burn the midnight oil. They'll stay up till 2.30 in the morning. They're the ones that send you emails at 2.30 in the morning. And, and by the way, there's one exception or one exemption in that group of people. The people who don't listen to their advice. They're done with you. Okay, and so I'm moving on. Number 10, has high expectations of self. And of others. Philippians chapter 1, again, verse 27, he says, Above all else, you're to live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. He is encouraging them with this high, high standard. You're a citizen of heaven, not, not of earth. Last in the car, I was teaching the kids this verse in Philippians about our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we're in the car, and I've got the neighbors in the car, and the, my kids in the car, and we're talking, and we're memorizing these scriptures, and, and, and clearly they're not getting it. So I said, do you all know what a citizen is? And, you know, we got a couple of faulty answers. And, and, and Ben says, like a senior citizen. And... <laughs> And I said, yeah, a senior citizen, as a citizen who belongs to a place, lives in a place, but they're older. He said, like you. And uh, I'm like, no, I'm not 65. Is I'm not senior citizen, but you're older than me, so you're my senior citizen. But, but Paul is saying you're a citizen, and your citizenship is not here on earth. It is in heaven. And, and by the way, children, you know this is easy to spot in children because the encouraging child is the bossy child. And if you got a child who is bossy, 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 listen, you ought to start shaping them into encouragement and teaching them how to encourage the people around them. Because what they do is they put a very high standard on themselves, and so they expect it of themselves, and they expect it out of other people. But they live with this realization that very few people, including themselves, ever live up to that standard. And, and so it's very easy for them to move into the flesh and go that route of being bossy, 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 bossy. And so what are the problems we see with encouragers? Here are some things that, that they say when they're in the flesh and some, and some things they think when they're in the flesh, okay? I have all the answers, so you should listen to me. That's an encourager in the flesh. And by the way, think through that. That's crazy for you and me to ever think, I have all the answers, and so you should listen to all that I say. Flesh, okay? This is another one. You should ask me for advice, and if you don't take it, you're stupid. <laughs> if you want the truth, come to me because I know what's best. That's the encourager in the flesh. And so how do we use this gift in the spirit and not in the flesh? Let's go through this list of seven things. Number one, wisdom. In the spirit, they have a great deal of wisdom. In the flesh, it's foolishness, where they lean on their own understanding. Number two, spirit side, discernment. Flesh side, impulsive. By the way, the encourager can be, come in the flesh very, very gullible. And they act too quickly in, in matters. Number three, in the spirit, is faith. In the flesh, presumption. And the presumption is that their way is the best way and the only way. Number four is love. They accept everybody as they are. And the flesh, it's selfishness. They pull away from people because they feel like, I don't have any time. Number five is creativity. 
They're creative. They're very creative, and God's creative. And, and, and number five, generality. Anytime you see an encourager saying, we're going to this HR policy, we're just going to treat everybody the same, and, and everybody's general, and every, we're just doom, doom, doom. It's a miserable experience for them or they're in the flesh, okay? So number six, enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. They, they, they're very enthusiastic. Number six in the flesh, apathy. And they become apathetic when you don't take their advice, okay? So number seven, joy. And number seven is frustration, okay? And so uh, rate yourself and score yourself. The teacher and the encourager, by the way, use the same tool, words. They, they both use words. And, and words are like a sword. They're like a double-edged sword. They can hurt or they can heal wounds. Words can do both. And, and a teacher can lead with impatience. Why didn't you get it right? Where an encourager can lead out of frustration. Why didn't you follow my advice? And why didn't you do what I said? And it's up to us to take those words and use them in the right way. And and Paul talks about how the encourager and the teacher dynamic, they work together. And and they worked together in his ministry. He, He says, keep on putting into practice all that you learned and all that you received and everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Do you hear it? Heard and saw, and then the God of peace will be with you. Paul was a great example of this show and tell. Watch and listen, and they go together, right? That that you see what I'm doing, and you know what I'm telling you. You don't have to guess about what you see, because I'm going to tell you. And both are very important in the acts of discipleship and in the acts of spiritual formation. It's show and tell, right? And I don't want you to miss that, because I think in the Modern culture today, I think the show part in church world, we, we, we understand that we've learned what it takes to, you know, to roll the show, right? And all the way to the credits. We, we, we know how to roll, roll the show that we live a good life and a moral life and, and we set the Christian example. But we're sort of waiting around on the world to ask us what, what the difference is. Years ago in youth ministry, I remember hearing the story about this young man who was praying and praying and praying, God, just take my life and let it be an example to everybody around me. And may my life be so different that everyone that is around me and comes in contact with me will ask me about the difference that's in my life. And for years, he prayed that every day and every night. No response. Finally, somebody says, hey, I want to talk to you today at lunch. And I'd like to ask you some questions. I feel like maybe there's some things that are different about you. And, and from that first hour all the way to lunch, he's just saying, this is it. God has finally answered my prayer. And he gets to lunch with this guy, and he thinks he's going to ask him about Christ and is the difference in his life about Jesus. And, and the guy sits down across from him and says, hey, I just want to ask you, are you a vegan? Which, by the way, you never have to wonder if someone's a vegan. They will tell you. But here's what I want you to understand. People don't know what God has done for you unless you speak up and tell them. That's why the blood of the lamb coupled with the word of our testimony is such a big deal. People do not know what it is about you that makes a difference in you and through you unless you tell them. And I think in modern church world, we have overemphasized this this social thing of living the good life, and we're really, really missing the boat and missing opportunities to tell 
people about Jesus Christ. And, and that's what Jesus did. He was the perfect example of show and tell, right? He told people, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no man is coming to the Father except by me. And, and then he clearly showed his love by jumping on a cross and dying for you and me to the degree that the last image that you and I have of Jesus in our hearts and our minds and on the paintings is him on, with his arms open wide on a cross, ready to receive all who would come to him as he is dying for your sin and for my sin, welcoming any and all that will come. And maybe you're here today and you need to come to Jesus and you need to come into his loving arms and into his embrace and into his hug. And So I just want to ask you on all of our churches today, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes and would you pray with me as we get ready to close the service? Believers, I'm going to ask that you're praying with me and over the people in all of our environments today, including those watching online. The camp's pastors are going to come at this time. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I, I want to lead you in a prayer. I, I can't give you faith, but I, I can give you words. And there's nothing magic about the words except for that if they reflect the attitude and the will of your heart and life that I believe Jesus is going to step out of heaven into your life to be your Lord and your Savior. And so right where you're seated, all of our churches today, would you just pray and say, Dear Jesus, would you come into my life to be my Lord? Come in as my Savior and my forgiver. In the best way that I know how, I turn my back on my sin and I trust you alone, Jesus, to save me. And I want to thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I want to thank you for dying on the cross for me and in my place. I receive you and I receive salvation. With nobody looking except for me and the other pastors, if you're here today and you just prayed that prayer and you meant it with all of your heart, would you just slip your hand up high and say, that's me, I meant it. I'm not going to embarrass you and I'm not even going to point you out, but we do want to pray with you and rejoice with you. Would you just slip your hand up on every campus today? 